surface it's a pretty easy question, but I realize there are several ways in which the question can rub against our especially American sensibilities when we think about leadership. Uh, this sermon title could easily just be, Who Leads the Church? And uh, for some, the answer might feel like, well, nobody should lead the church. I'm sick of abusive leaders. And I get that because leaders have been abusive and leaders are abusive. And then especially with our American sensibilities of um, rebelling against the tyranny of the British crown and then wearing that, that's part of our DNA as, as a people uh, to check our leaders and to vie for independence and to claim rights. And I, I get all of that. But leadership is important. Uh, it's difficult to think of a team without a coach, uh, a classroom without a teacher, a squadron without a commander. You just, leadership, leadership is needed. The right kind of leadership is needed. Uh, but if you have a terrible teacher, that doesn't mean, well, let's, let's just have a classroom with no teachers, right? We need good leadership, and Scripture gives us what we need for that. Now, different churches have approached this differently. Some churches just say, well, there is no one leader. And part of that is to protect against abuses. They can point to abuses and go, see, um, that guy that was really flashy on YouTube ended up being a jerk, and it's crushing and it's hurtful. And some churches believe that there really shouldn't be any one leader. Some churches just have just one leader. Uh, just put the best guy out there and, and, and let him lead us. Some churches will say, we need a few equal leaders. So that you don't just have one guy, but you also don't lack leadership. How about a few equal people leading the church? And then others would say, how about a few leaders, but one or more of them might be especially gifted uh, in teaching. Uh, but he's not just the sole leader, but he might get the mic more often than, than others. And if that sounds like us, that's a lot of churches. But uh, I think much of what we are dealing with are reactions to abuses. Reactions to abuses. Uh, but we want to lean into what, what Scripture teaches, and we want to hold two things together, what Scripture clearly teaches, and then general prudence. In other words, there are certain things that Scripture demands, and then other things that Scripture leaves as options, and we need to do what's wisest, what's prudent. Could a church just have one leader? Maybe. Is that wise to have one person holding all the cards? Probably not. Probably not. So let's look into what Scripture says. We're going to be in two passages mainly. And so you can turn there. No slides today, all right? Your slides, okay, is your Bible, all right? That's what we're doing today uh, as we normally do. But 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy in the pastoral epistles, those short books toward the end of your Bible. I'd give you a page number, but we all have different copies, so that's not really going to help. But 1 Timothy will be one passage. We'll spend most of our time there. Also put your finger in the book of Acts. We're going to be in the book of Acts briefly uh, in a little bit. So 1 Timothy and also the book of Acts. Let me give you a little bit of background uh, to elders. Elders lead the church. I think this is clear in Scripture. Elders lead the church. However, whatever way you slice it, I think elders should be leading the church. Now we can talk about checks and balances so the elders don't get carried away and there need to be checks and balances. Uh, and for those of you who remember, as you've seen our constitution and bylaws, there's a lot of checks and balances in there. And that's what we're trying to guard against is so that elders don't just uh, take uh, the church in any, any direction they want. Uh, 
But there's an Old Testament background to it. Elders throughout the scripture, even the Old Testament, they're leaders of households. They're leaders of uh, communities, nations, and not just Israel. Israel had elders. Egypt had elders. Um, you, you see that as well. So it wasn't just an, uh, an Israelite thing. Uh, Israel had elders before Moses even came on the scene. In fact, when Moses had to deliver God's message, he gathered the elders because they were the ones that would communicate to the people. Now, if elder sounds like old person, it, it kind of is. Now, you don't have to be old to be an elder, but usually in communities throughout history, the people with the greatest wisdom in the group uh, might be a surprise to our teenagers, but they weren't teenagers. Most of the time, uh, they were not teenagers. And I know we tend to think of old people as out of touch and they don't know how to navigate their way around uh, our newfangled apps. Uh, they don't get memes. Um, but that's pretty new on the scene and I think arrogant of those of us who are younger to not see our older gray-haired folks as wise and experienced and having been around the block a few times and we should listen to what they have to say. Elders usually were older. And remember when we were in Proverbs 31 recently, the Proverbs 31 woman, her husband is respected in the city gate. In Proverbs 31:22 says he's respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. So these are the sort of the leaders uh, of the society. So elders are leaders. So New Testament doesn't just come on and start talking about elders. It's sort of taking the elder concept and then chiseling it. What is an elder? What qualifies somebody to be an elder? What do they do? And here's the first point I think is really important. Not all churches agree with this, but I think churches need a plurality of elders to lead. A plurality of elders, more than one, in a local church seems to be the norm, maybe even the prescription. I think I'd go as far as to say I think the Bible prescribes that. So if you're looking for a church and there's just the one guy and you're like, who, who else is an elder? Like, no, just the one guy. I'm not saying that church is going to hell. I'm not saying they're even, they're not orthodox, but I, I, I would caution a church to not do that. Here's a few verses real quick. You don't have to write them down, but you can look them up later and listen online or whatever, rewind. But James chapter 5, remember what he says, if any of you is sick, if any of you is sick, what should you do? Call the elders, plural. He's just assuming that there are more than one. In Acts 14, Elders were appointed in every church, Acts 14, 23. Every church had elders, plural. Acts 20, verse 17, Paul says goodbye to the church at Ephesus. And you remember that long, sorrowful, heartbreaking goodbye because he pretty much knows he's not going to see them again. And they're a plurality of elders that he's saying goodbye to there. In Titus 1, Paul tells Titus to appoint elders in every city. And as I've talked to you about before, we have this great privilege of like, I think I'll go to church on this street. Let me try the church on that street. Back then, if you lived in Corinth, guess what church you went to? The messed up church that was pushing each other out of the way for communion. That messed up church, that was your church, right? It wasn't like third Presbyterian church of, of Corinth. It was just the church at Corinth. So churches in every city had m multiple elders, according to Paul's command to Titus in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. And then one more, you remember in 1 Peter 5, Right there in verse 1, Peter exhorts the elders, plural, to shepherd the church. So every time you see elders pop up in the New Testament, they're, they're plural, okay? Uh, we don't have an explicit command. Churches must have more than one elder, but we see it assumed. We see Paul commanding it, and then there's that prudence piece that I told you about. Who's going to check the pastor 
the one guy, uh, if he doesn't have anybody next to him that can go toe-to-toe with him and open scripture and say, brother, I think you're in error here. I think this is not right. I don't think you should do that. And I'm very blessed that there have been times uh, in my ministry here that I wanted to do something, and it gets checked. And then I don't do I don't get my way all the time. Sometimes I do, but I've got to prove it. And let me just be honest with you. Sometimes I go to these elders and meetings like, oh, I've got to convince them, prove it to them, show it to them. They need to dwell on it for a while. Then maybe three months from now we can do it. Now, a lot of the time, that's how it happens. Um, but I, I can't run ahead of them and just go, you guys are too slow, you need to catch up, let me just do it. Because then we're d- back down to one guy in charge, unchecked leadership, not good, not good. But I'm thankful that uh, the brothers that you all have surrounded me with uh, are willing and able to study and to look things up and to look me in the eye and be like, nah, if needed. That's important. And if that changes in in our church, uh, you need to take advantage of the Constitution and bylaws and surround me with guys that would do that. Or get me out of here. I'm serious. You don't want a guy that just does whatever he wants. Let's look at that passage in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And you'll see that the focus is not on skills, not on how popular, not even on levels of education. A lot of the things we focus on when we're hiring a pastor or thinking about elders, it's so focused on character. It is so focused on character. And it's really... (laughs) It's pretty uh, not remarkable, you know, the things that are asked of, of an elder or of an overseer. So let's look at a few things. First Timothy chapter 3, I'm going to just read through 1 through 7 and make some comments. The saying is trust, trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, nor a drunkard, nor violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be, become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. So many things there. We're not going to unpack all of them because this is a topic we're going to try to address in a broad way with a broad scope. But the word here, overseer, is episkopos. And if that sounds like Episcopalian, yeah, that's exactly where they get it from. It means bishop. And scripture interchanges bishop with pastor, with elder. They're not three different things. They're, they're three terms for the same, for the same thing. Uh, for the same office, and I can spend time unpacking that, but I don't think that's as controversial as some other things that I might need to address. And then you'll notice desiring it is not wrong. If somebody says, hey, you know what, maybe I could be an elder. You're not supposed to be like, well, that's your first strike right there, wanting it. <laughs> you know, you arrogant jerk. Uh, well, no, it's, it's a noble task, and if somebody aspires to become an overseer, that's, that's a noble task to aspire to, and, and you should be... Um, you should not think that aspiring to it is necessarily, you know, a, a, some kind of power grab. 
desiring it is not necessarily wrong, but you need to be qualified for it. And so the qualifications are pretty simple, they're pretty straightforward, and they're not mind-blowing. I mean, verse 3, can you just not be drunk? You know, can, can you just not show up to meetings drunk? That'd be a real great start, you know? Can you not flip tables and punch people, you know, just not be violent? Could you be a little more gentle? Um, there's, it's just not the highest bar you've ever seen in, in, in Scripture. Um, but it's to be somebody who's exemplary in their leadership, so exemplary that even people outside of our fellowship respect them, which you see in the last verse we read in verse 7, even respected by outsiders. Uh, so this person, people can see. It's not just in their own mind that they are qualified. People can see that they're qualified. So I want you to notice that he's giving us qualifications that other people can recognize so that we're not just waiting for some note from God to drop from heaven like, this is an elder, elect this person. We're supposed to be able to recognize, that, hey, if you look through the qualifications, we, you know, this person meets certain qualifications. It's not a popularity contest, but there are some things that we can look at and say, hey, this person in general is self-controlled, sober-minded, doesn't cheat on his wife. He invites people to his house. He likes to have meals with people. He's hospitable. He's not always arguing, picking on things all the time. He's not quarrelsome. He doesn't love money. He uses money wisely, but he's not always grabbing for more. Those kinds of things that help us discern whether somebody is somebody who could be an elder. Aside from character traits, there's one ability piece, which is the ability to teach. You see that in the end of verse 2. So you could have someone meet all these qualifications, but they just don't know doctrine, and they're not, they don't really know their way around Scripture, and you, you don't want that person uh, to be an elder. Why? Because that's the function. That's the main function is to be able to teach a congregation what, what's error and what's true and to use Scripture as guidance, not the strength of my personality, right? Um, not the prevailing winds of culture, but to use Scripture to teach. Uh, that's not always public preaching. It could be discipleship. It could be correcting where there's error, noticing somebody is teaching something wrong, but it's the ability to teach that is the, the only skill, really. Everything else is a character trait. So this is an authoritative teaching role. Now here's where I'll step into some controversy because it, it comes up, and I think especially in our day and age, throughout the history of the church, this wasn't the biggest question. Right now, one of the biggest questions we deal with is, uh, should it just be men? Should it just be men? Uh, it assumes men. Scripture assumes men. Husband of one wife, right? So it's assuming that elders are going to be male. And I know that this sounds um, like it rubs against our sensibilities. Like, why? Are, aren't women equal? Yes, of course, women are equal in value. Uh, but he gives us some guidance in the previous passage in chapter 2, where he talks about having order within the service and that. Uh, women are supposed to adorn themselves with uh, respectable apparel and modesty and self-control, those kind of things. I don't want to. He's not against braided hair. He's just saying you're. Uh, you should spend more time in your word than you do in the mirror. That's kind of what he's getting at. You're, it's not your outside that is really your beauty. It's it's the inside. But then he says in verse 12, he drops this bomb, which. To us, it, it hits like a bomb in our, in our culture, in our society. Even today, in many societies outside of America, it's really not a, as big of a deal. But 
I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. And then we take that like, okay, I guess women have to just, the last thing they can say is in the parking lot before they don the entrance of whatever you call the, you know, foyer. And then just zip it until you're back. As soon as your feet touch the asphalt again, now you can speak again. And that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the role of standing up, everyone else being quiet while you tell them what to do. It's an authoritative teaching, not speaking in general. And some churches, I think, that are complementarian with male leadership take it too far. Women can't sing. Women can't pass a basket. Women can't hand out bulletins. Women can't. This is talking about standing up here, telling everybody how they should live their lives, how they should manage their households, correcting and rebuking and admonishing. That's involved in the teaching of the word. Now, I want you to notice something real quick, because I don't want to spend the entire time on this, but I want you to notice something real quick. People say, well, the reason why he made this command is because it was their culture for males to lead, or it was because of the women's lack of education. Now that women have education or access to education, uh, you know, it might be culture, it might be education or some other thing, but he doesn't tie it to any of those things. He ties it to creation order. This is what really bothers us, right? But he ties it to creation order. Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. There was an order to that formation. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. That doesn't mean Adam's off the hook. Remember, Jesus didn't come to be the second Eve, but the second Adam. He was the one to whom guilt was ultimately pinned. But what he's getting at is that subversion of the order is what got us into trouble in the first place. Eve was getting deceived by the serpent. Adam didn't step up. He stayed quiet. She had the conversation with Satan. She decided to take the fruit, gave it to him, and then he followed her. And you remember, God told Eve, from here on out, you're going to want to dominate the man. But he's going to have the leadership. And there's going to be this friction. And we feel that because of what happened in the garden. It's not new in terms of feeling that tension. But he doesn't tie it to culture or education. He ties it to creation order. But then she ends up becoming this hero in verse 15. How do we get salvation? Through the birth, you know, that's why every Christmas uh, season we focus on Mary's birth to this child, and he gives that promise in verse 15. So he's not throwing Eve under the bus. He's not saying women don't have value. In fact, without them, salvation wouldn't be available at all, at all, except through the, the childbearing of uh, the woman Eve, and then that going forward to the ultimate seed of Jesus Christ himself. So, Elders are not just assumed to be men, but we see that if elders are supposed to be teaching, uh, leading their households, then they also, as leading their households, they also lead the church, but they have to be qualified, they have to be qualified men to be appointed as elders. So we believe churches should be led by a plurality of qualified men appointed as elders. I recognize not every church sees it that way, but I want to make a couple points that will help us, okay, as we go forward, especially for those of you who are members. All right. Qualifications get precedence over plurality. I'll say that again. Qualifications set out in Scripture take precedence over plurality. Now, how many, church, how many elders should a church have? Well, that, I think as the church grows, you want more elders. You don't want three guys leading a church of 3,000 people. It's just it's too much. You remember back when Jethro gave Moses advice? It's too many people, Moses, for you to figure out every case. Have 
have a, a sort of multi-tiered approach where the easy cases get handled by these guys, and then you've got, those are like your yellow belts, you know? Then you keep going up to like your purple belts can handle like your, your tougher decisions, and then you'll be like the, the what, I forget, the back black belt with 15 stripes on it or whatever, like the guy at the top, you know? And then you take just the hard cases. You just take, you take the tough ones. And so there's that wisdom that applies to leadership in the church as well. But for the sake of numbers, you don't want to just throw guys on the elder team, but you're not sure. He seems kind of violent, but hey, we need a third guy. You know, that's just not a good situation. So qualifications get precedence over plurality, but ideally there's no conflict. The the church should have enough men uh, to join that team. Uh, And Scripture gives guidance, and we also have prudence with regard to that as well. Uh, When you have multiple wise men surrounding your pastor, say the guy who spends more time teaching and has, you know, more of the pulpit time, there is a greater influence there. There just is. The guy that has the mic has more influence. So all the more reason to surround that guy with wise elders that are qualified and can pull him aside and go, I don't think that was the direction you should, you should have taken. Or conversely, hey, man, that was a good job, you know, because uh, hey, brother needs that too sometimes, man, you know. Um, so there's that sort of check and balance involved with the plurality of elders that are serving in, in that way. Even if they all don't have the same education background, we should be able to ha- handle Scripture in a way that is beneficial to you. You should feel fed by it and nourished by it, and we shouldn't have authority issues if uh, we're wise. Now, churches, uh, there's a spectrum of congregational-led and elder-led, and sometimes if you go too heavy here, the congregation doesn't have a voice. So as long as I can convince the two or three guys that are next to me that this is the way we should go, then that's just what we're going to do. All I have to do is convince them. And you could have a situation where I'm surrounded by a couple of, you might say, yes men, right? It's just, uh, we love Lucas so much, we just do what he says. And then you've got this skewed power point over here. And then you've got the spectrum here where it's congregational-led. We don't do elders. We just vote on everything. That's problematic too. Could you imagine voting on every single thing we did? Now, there was a time in our church where we didn't have clear parameters, and we voted on some things. We didn't vote on other things. But uh, for those of you who are here, you might remember those meetings used to feel tense. And I wasn't sure what was up for vote or what wasn't because we didn't have clear parameters. And sometimes someone would be upset, but I I didn't know what rule I broke because it just, it was too unclear. And so then we moved to this sort of middle, maybe a little bit this way, where we've got uh, elders, pastors, we use the same term for both. Some are lay elders, meaning it's not their vocation. For me, it is my vocation. We use the term pastor for that, okay? And we meet and we make decisions, but there are about six items in our Constitution, I'm not going to walk you through them now, where we just can't make the decision on our own. We do have to bring those to a vote, okay? So what we're doing there, do I have a verse that says you must have six things? No, but we're trying to protect ourselves from having too much power, right? But if we vote on everything, we would never get anything done. So, you know, some some of those things are, your ability as a congregation to vote off uh, the elders or the pastors that are not doing well. 
and to put on guys who would do well. And if we're not having a good track record, it's on you to make those changes. Does that make sense? All right, so we are trusting you. This is why we take membership so seriously, and we don't just hand membership out to everybody. It's like, you actually have power to make me jobless. So can we interview you? You know, this is a big deal. All right, the second thing I want to talk about quickly is deacons. And there might be some less clarity here with regard to what we understand with deacons. And in the history of our church, deacons are a little newer. I know this sounds kind of luxury, but every once in a while, I think we need a layout like this so you understand, hey, who's leading the church and how does this function, right? Uh, and I think it's important for us to understand. If you look at verse 8, same passage, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, he gives qualifications for deacons. Let's read those briefly. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Lots of overlap with the qualifications for elders. One thing that is conspicuously missing is the ability to teach. Can an elder teach? Yes. Does an elder have to teach? No, that's not the focus of the role. It is an office. The word deacon just means servant, and deacons are used, uh, the word servant is used of every Christian. The word servant is used of the Apostle Paul. He's a deacon. The word servant is used of Jesus himself. Jesus is a deacon. You're like, wait a minute, everybody's a deacon? Deacon small D or keep de deacon capital D, right? Are we talking about servant in general? or the office of servant, and it is an office. If you go to Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, you don't have to turn there now, but if you look at that, Paul addresses the church by saying, hey, I'm writing this to the elders and the deacons and all the saints. So if all the saints are already deacons, why would he separate deacons from saints? It was because he's seeing two offices and then everybody else that those two offices serve and help, right? So deacon is an office, how can you tell if it's a capital D or small d? It's the context. Um, now, this is why I asked you to look at Acts chapter 6. We'll look at Acts chapter 6 really quickly because most see this as the birth of the office. Where, when the deacons come to be? The word deacon isn't used here, but the verb is to serve uh, in verse 2. But let's look at this first paragraph, 1 through 7. Let me read it, and you can see how many see this as the birth of, of the deacons. Why are they needed? Why were they necessary? And how did they come to be? Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, these are the uh, Greek-influenced Jews, rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Verse 2, and the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. 
These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I think what Luke is doing here is establishing that churches need order in order to have the effect they're supposed to have. Right? You can't just have chaos in a church. Chaos was ensuing, and the elders are like, we can handle this. Some of our widows aren't getting the food that they're supposed to because we've got racism up in here. But if we spend time on that, we're going to neglect preaching and teaching the word of God. Now, some churches so busy, the elders and the pastors, that they choke out the time that they need to spend time in the word of God. And that's not good. So what the apostles are doing is protecting that time for, for sermons, for Bible study, for leading people according to the word and not being so consumed by logistical matters that they don't have time for that. That doesn't mean the logistical matters don't matter, because if they were like, who cares who gets the distribution, then they would have just said, move on, just figure it out. No, it is important. It is important, and that's why they established these seven who would be full of the Spirit, full of wisdom. They're going to lead this difficult situation in the church. Now, I don't know about your background, but many churches, you've got wisdom and veteran spiritual pedigree in the deacons or in the elders, and your deacons just are the guys or the people that hand out bulletins. They're just on committees. Uh, they're putting together the, the pie festival. But if you look at, if this is the birth of the deacons, you see, hey, this is a weighty matter that they were entrusted with. And I think that's important to note when we think of what a deacon is. So their function, according to Acts 6, if this is the birth of the deacons, the, the office, their function, the function of a deacon is to take logistical leadership uh, for the elders. That doesn't mean elders don't oversee it, but since elders focus on the teaching like the apostles did, deacons come alongside and help focus on logistical things. Deacons are pretty new in our church, and we're still learning that whole rhythm, but sometimes something comes to me, and then I push it to Bill and Winder. Is it because I don't care? No, because that's, the, that's why they're there. They're there to handle logistical things so that me and Andy and Aaron don't get jammed up with handling all the logistics and then we don't have time to focus on the ministry of the word and prayer. So that's what a deacon does. And we see that emphasized in verse 2 and in verse 4 that we're pro- the deacons are sort of protecting and guarding the teaching preparation and focus for the elders. Now again, the, the question comes up and has come up in, in our church in the past, can women be deacons? This is much more debatable than with the elder issue, okay? With the elder issue, it's clearer. With this issue, not as clear, but you still have to make a choice, right? If a church tells you, hey, we just, we just do both, guess what that is? Egalitarian, if you, if you do both, then you have women that are deacons. I'm not saying that's wrong of a church to do, but a church has to make a decision. So several years ago, when we were faced with a question, uh, the elders and I, we dove in and we tried to focus on what, what do we do here. Uh, we don't want to be unnecessarily countercultural, as I think some churches do. We're just like, whatever the culture says, we do the opposite, and that's how holy we are. You know, you don't want to be in that mode where the culture is still dictating what you do because you just do everything the opposite of what a culture does. And I don't think that's the right way to take it either. But nor do we want to, uh, look, the elder thing was so difficult. Is there any breathing room on this one? Can we just, can we just give the women a win here or, or however we might think of it? I think, I think 
uh, the clearest or the, uh, the most consistent position is that scriptural, uh, biblical deacons are male. They're, they're men. I'm just going to give a couple free fast things. I'm not saying I couldn't be at a church that had male deacons. I just, if you have to call it, I think the evidence weighs further into uh, men as deacons. Let me just give a, a quick thing here. You might look at your passage, if you're following with me in, in the ESV, there's different translations of Scripture. Obviously, we're reading a translation of Koine Greek. And you say, hey, I mean, it says right there that um, deacons must have this and must have that. And then verse 11, it says their wives have to meet certain qualifications. But the word wives there is a translation of a word that can mean wife or woman. And you have to make a call. Okay, so those of you who are bilingual, if you've ever been asked to translate anything and you get stuck and you're like, well, it could be this or it could be that because languages work that way. So what do you do when a word could mean wife or could mean woman and you don't know which one it's necessarily supposed to be? I think it should be wives there for a couple of reasons. One, the last time we saw the word gynaikos clearly meant wife in the previous paragraph. So there's one piece of evidence. Uh, another question that comes up is why would Paul give qualifications for deacons' wives if he didn't give qualifications for elders' wives? Right? So some would say it must mean female deacons because why would he give qualifications for the deacons' wives if he didn't give qualifications for the elders' wives? My response to that is I don't know, but I don't think that drives the narrative. You have to choose which is weirder, okay? Um, not a common exegetical method, but you have to choose which is more strange, that Paul gives qualifications to deacons' wives and doesn't give them to elders' wives, and we're left wondering why? Or is it more strange that Paul gives a set of qualifications for men who are deacons, but if you're a woman who's a deacon, then you need these qualifications, a separate set of qualifications for female deacons than male deacons. Does, does that make sense? So Paul's bopping along, right? He's like, here's what you have to be if you're going to be an elder in verses 1 through 7. Now I'm going to give you what you're supposed to be if you're going to be a deacon. Deacons need to be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, hold to the mystery of the faith. Uh, deacons need to be tested first if they're going to be served as deacons. Then verse 11, but specifically if you're the woman, you need to be dignified. You need to make sure you don't slander. You need to make sure you're sober-minded. You need to make sure you're faithful. So he, he's changing. Now I'm getting specific to women deacons. You need to be these things. I think that's weirder. Then he goes back clearly to men in verse 12. He's changing lanes again. Let the deacons be husband of one wife. He didn't just say be faithful in marriage, but now he's clearly back to the men. So which is weirder, that he doesn't do it for the elders, but he does do it for his deacons? Or is it weirder that he's talking to the men, then it's something else for the women, then back to the men? I think that's weirder, and so it veers me into, I think, male leadership among the deacons. Final piece of evidence is the churches that say women's, women can be deacons also claim Acts 6 as evidence for what a deacon is. If it weren't for Acts 6, we wouldn't be clear on what deacons even do. Let me just put that out there. If Acts 6 weren't in the Bible, we'd be like, what is a deacon? I don't know. Everyone's a servant. But Acts 6 lays out, hey, it's to protect the, the teaching ministry of the word, to handle logistical matters. But if you claim Acts 6, I think it demands male leadership as it explicitly says. Uh, the, the daily distribution was the problem. In verse 2, the, the 12 summoned the disciples together. 
it's not right for us to give up the preaching of the word to serve tables. Nothing wrong with serving tables. The tables do need to be served, but it shouldn't be us that has to do it. So who should do it? Pick out from among you seven men. And the Greek word there means men. I mean, and then what kind of men? Full of good repute, or good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom whom you will appoint to this duty. So this is a weighty matter. And it specifies males there. Now, I wrestled with this. I was like, ah, if they're not teaching, why does it have to be men? I don't want to stand up there and be complementarian, meaning um, male and female have different roles in the church, with regard to yet another issue. More countercultural, more like, oh, yeah, sorry, you know, like this is what Scripture says. I don't want to do that. And I wrestled with, if women aren't teaching as deacons, then why in the world are they described as men? Again, I, I don't think this is as clear or as necessary to decide as the prior issue, but you do have to take a position at a church. And I think, I think it's because deacons, uh, they wield authority in the church. And when we think of deacons as like, deacons don't wield authority. That's your background of your church that had deacons, just the deacon of the soundboard, the deacon of carpet, the deacon of, you know what I mean? The deacon of cleaning the dishes. That, that's, churches did that. When you look at Scripture, these guys needed to be full of the Spirit, full of wisdom. Who were the first deacons? Stephen? Philip? Are those big shoes to fill? Yeah, those are, those are big shoes to fill. Why did it take CFC a long time to identify deacons? That's why. You're basically an elder-qualified person. You just don't have the responsibility of teaching. But that's, it's a big role. It's a big job. You think about these families that were feeling like they were being pushed aside in the church because they were Hellenistic rather than Jewish. That is a weighty issue. And they needed people to step into that situation and say, Stop it! We will not tolerate racism in this church. And so we're going to bring order to this place. Well, I want to hear from the apostles. Do you see this badge? The apostles appointed us to tell you what to do here. And we're not going to skip those widows. That's authority, right? It's delegated authority, but it's still authority for someone to step up and tell families how to share the meal when they get together at church. I think that's why. I think that's why. That means we need to kind of raise the bar of what a deacon is in the church, okay? As we did 15 years ago when I first got here for elders. Elders used to be kind of thumbs up or thumbs down to what the pastor wanted to do, just to kind of check the pastor, but not really co-lead the church. And we kind of raise the bar and say, hey, we're shepherds together. We pray together. We go on visitations together. We share the teaching load in some ways. And so we want to raise the bar on what a deacon is as well, because deacons aren't just there to be committee chairs. Anybody can be the chair of a committee. Anybody can be a ministry team leader. But deacon, capital D, that, I, think, I think scripture has that bar set a little high if Acts 6 and 1 Timothy 3 have anything to say about it. So here's the point to help us as a church. Not that we have a particular problem here, but I think it's helpful for us to address it every once in a while. Churches should be led by a plurality of qualified elders, ideally assisted by qualified deacons. I say ideally because I don't think, I think if you say you have a church and there's no elders, it's not a church yet because elders are necessary. Deacons come in time when the church is growing and there's different things, logistical matters that the elders need help with, and then deacons come into play. The final thing I want to leave with before we wrap up really quickly is I understand that for many of us, uh, 
you know, we, we look around and we see the, the prominence of women in churches, and they are prominent. Most Christians, most faithful church attenders are women. And uh, many of us grew up with our moms taking us to church, and dad was either absent or physically there but still absent. You know what I mean? And we look around and we go, well, if women are leading ministries, women are the ones that are mostly populating the pews, and women are the ones taking charge, and women are the one, ones with the initiative, why shouldn't women lead? And what I say to you that is shame on us for not charging our men with the responsibility to step up into the role. Do you remember the old black and white commercials you would see where the woman was just like, oh, you want me to serve you? You want me to serve you? And the guy just walks in with his jacket and he's all in charge. And we're like, ugh, that was such a male-dominated society. Let's be different. And now when you watch commercials, the guy's the idiot who doesn't know how to use anything. And she looks at the camera. She's like, that's why I buy him this product, because he's such a moron <laughs> that we, he just needs this help, right? Isn't your guy an idiot? I know my guy is. It's the opposite, right? What I'm saying is, um, if we have more mature women than men, we shouldn't de-emphasize women. We shouldn't teach them less. But the men need to step up. Men need to step up. Women shouldn't be outnumbering us at prayer meetings, outnumbering us at Bible studies, outdoing us in terms of who is catechizing our children. Guys like, well, if the kid needs to learn how to work an engine, then pop the hood and I'll teach him. But, you know, Bible stuff, you do that half. That's not scriptural either. And if you feel like, well, your wife knows more, then learn. Then learn. Step up. Spirituality shouldn't be a female lane. And it wasn't in scripture. So scripture assumes that churches bank on having mature men. That doesn't mean less mature women it means that we charge and challenge our men to lean in and catch up. And I think we need to take that with some seriousness so that we can uh, lead our households in a way where kids are growing up seeing uh, interest in Christ as not a mom thing, but a, a dad and mom thing that is for everyone. And especially for our church, I want us to continue to invest in our guys, because, you know, left to ourselves, we do want to slough off leadership, and we would rather the women take the lead. We may not say it, but we don't feel like it. It's less pressure, and we get to just hang out in the man cave a little more. Uh, but that's not the way it's supposed to be. So let's challenge each other to challenge our men, and those of us who are guys in the church, let's continue to press forward and to press ahead and to take up the challenge to be the kind of guys that could be deacons, it could be elders, for the benefit of the church. Let's pray together. Father, we, uh, with humility, 